0: Okay, well, good evening. Good to see you guys. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4. Tonight in our study of 1 Peter, as we just mentioned, we are going to be in chapter 4, starting with verse 1. And you'll notice that the very first word of verse 1 is the word therefore. Now, we have seen this numerous times already in our study of 1 Peter and in our other studies of God's Word, whenever we see a therefore to begin a sentence, it means that the writer is now going to make application to our lives based on what he has just gotten done teaching. In this case, Peter has been talking about how Christ suffered and died. If you back up to chapter 3, verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, guys, the key idea that this whole paragraph is built around is found in the phrase, arm yourselves. It comes from the Greek word hop, hop uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to blow this. Um, hoplitsamai, okay, <laughs> hoplitsamai. And uh, it's a word that was used in the Greek of a soldier preparing himself for battle by putting on his armor. But understand, this Greek word isn't used for light armor, but for heavy armor. In other words, the kind that was used in serious combat against a formidable enemy. And Paul used the noun form of this word numerous times uh, in his writings. We see uh, him talk about the armor of light. Uh, That's that Greek word there, Romans 13, 12. He talks about the weapons of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 6, Seven, and the weapons of spiritual warfare in Second Corinthians 10, verse 4. Now, one author rightly warned, he said, God does not promise to carry us to the skies on flowery beds of ease. God does not hand out colorful brochures offering good health, prosperity, wide popularity, and a long life to those who accept Christ. Those who array themselves in such flimsy robes are in for a shock, end quote. And so guys, when Peter tells us to arm ourselves, well, it's a command in the Greek. It's a command to prepare for battle. But notice what he connects this command to. He said, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Now, of course, the mind that Peter is referring to is the mind of Christ towards suffering. And I like what the author William MacDonald said about this. He said, and I quote, we have been considering Christ as an example of one who suffered unjustly. He suffered at the hands of wicked men for the cause of righteousness. Since this was so, his followers should arm themselves with the same mind. They should expect to suffer for his name. They should be prepared to endure persecution because they are Christians. End quote. Now guys, this is very interesting to me and extremely important for us understand that our mind or mindset or attitude same idea is also a weapon in the christian's arsenal let me say it again our mind or mindset or attitude is one of the weapons that we take up uh, that god you know makes available in the christian arsenal but it's one that we must make use of and let me say this if you don't you're not going to be victorious you're not going to be victorious. Warren Wordsby put it this way. suddenly I quote, "The picture is that of a soldier who puts on his equipment and arms himself for battle. Our attitudes are weapons, and weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. Outlook determines outcome. And a believer must have the right attitudes if he is to live a right life." end quote. Now look at, all believers know about the armor of the Christian that Paul lists in Ephesians 6. That's obvious. We have done studies on that portion of Scripture. But let me say this to you. I don't think a lot of Christians realize that without arming themselves with the proper attitude, none of that other stuff matters. We like to focus on the armor of a Christian. Paul lists it, right? The helmet of salvation. Uh, the uh, Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Our waist girded with the belt of truth. We have the sword of the Spirit, and so on. We like to focus on those, and it's important that we do that. But do you realize, if you don't take up the the right attitude, none of that other stuff matters. It is critical, okay, uh, to our victory in the Christian life uh, over Satan, sin, self, the world. I mean, we have numerous enemies that we face, some without, some within. But it's critical for our victory that we understand this principle. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, Verses 3 and 4. He said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, guys, again, this gets into the mindset or the attitude of a soldier of Christ. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But since Peter brings it up, I would like to revisit this subject just briefly. All right, we'll move on. You see, before you'll be willing, Paul said, you know, you must endure hardship. But let me say as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But before you will be willing, all right, which speaks of, again, of attitude, before you're going to be willing to endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you must first think of yourself as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, so basic, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Maybe to you guys, because you have this mindset. But there's a lot of Christians, they don't understand this at all. They don't understand this at all. I mean, if you don't think of yourself as a soldier of Jesus Christ, fighting in a war against the devil and his demons, for the souls of men and women, most of whom are those closest to you, your family, close friends, relatives. Well, if you don't see yourself in this battle every day, against the devil and his demons, for the souls of human beings, you're never going to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're never going to be victorious over sin. I want you to just stop and think about this, all right? Imagine that right now you are on the battlefield in Iraq somewhere. Every morning you wake up, you are very conscious of the fact that the enemy could attack, they could drop bombs, they could make a surprise attack on the ground. Every morning that you wake up, the first thing you do is you put on the proper attire. You got your flak vest. You got your helmet. You make sure your weapon is by your side and ready to go, all right? And then, of course, throughout the day, you are on guard or you are also working to maintain equipment that it's ready to go when needed. Everything is about being prepared because at any moment, the enemy could attack, Right? you would understand it because you were on the battlefield, literally, and that's what soldiers do. That's how they think. As Christians, the same is true for us, and yet because the war is invisible, we often take it for granted. Even though we know the Bible says all over the New Testament that we are soldiers, that we have armor. That we have to be on guard. That Satan is like a, a general who goes about working his strategy. We can't be ignorant of his stra- strategic uh, uh, advances and so on. We have to be you know, very conscious of what's going on. And yet we often get lax. And I want you to understand something. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell in the Garden of Eden, not only did they fall, but... All of their descendants would be born fallen sinners as well. In other words, the whole world is lost. The whole world is lost. Jesus, of course, came into this world to defeat the devil. And he said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's the heart of our Savior. That is our mission as well. With all the stuff going on in the church today, with all the distractions, with all the way the church has become a glorified, you know, um, just a, a social event, we lose sight of the fact our mission is to seek and to save those who are lost. And look, Satan is the god of this world. That's what the Bible says. Has orchestrated everything in this world to keep a person away from Christ. Now, once a person receives Christ, He continues to work, and he's the God of this world. So he works through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Everything in this world has been orchestrated by the devil to either keep a person from Christ or, once they get saved, to distract them away from Christ. The whole goal is to keep you away from the battle because he doesn't want you being used to bring anybody else to Jesus Christ. He's all about the war, all about it. And we have to be too. We have to be too. And we've talked about this. Look, a soldier can have the finest body armor and weaponry that money can buy. But listen, if he or she doesn't have the mind of a soldier, if they refuse to fight, a lot of Christians just don't fight. I mean, that's not where they're coming from, all right? If a soldier of Christ refuses to fight or is unwilling to endure hardships for the suffering of christ cause of christ but guess what then everything else is worthless it's worthless guys too many christians are unwilling to endure hardships for christ because they have been led to believe that the christian life is listen not about war but it's about wealth it's not about war it's about wealth the wealth they were promised if they became a christian you know jesus said it's impossible to serve two masters god and money if you try, you're only going to get yourself entangled in the cares of this life. And by the way, going back to what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, he said, you therefore must, be, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And that's a Greek word that means the basics of life. Now look, we need food, shelter, that kind of thing. We need all that. But God doesn't want us to become preoccupied with that and entangled in worrying about all that because then we get our eyes off the fight. We get our eyes off of what we're supposed to be doing, right? Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else you need to live, survive in this life physically, he'll provide for you. But God does not want us living at the level of the flesh He wants us living at the level of the Spirit. And so it's easy to even allow the basics to entangle us, where it's all we're thinking about. We're just consumed with worry about, you know, where the mortgage is coming from or the rent next month or uh, food on the table or whatever. We have to trust God. He'll open a door. He'll provide a way. He'll take care of us because he wants us to keep ourselves focused on what really matters. This is one of the biggest pitfalls in the Christian life, I think. I mean, keeping our eyes on what really matters. Um, We get sidetracked so easy. But again, if a soldier in battle uh, gets distracted, well, at very least, they're probably going to be defeated. At worst, they could die. That's why soldiers understand, especially when they're in the heat of battle, they need to keep their mind sharp. They need to keep their focus. They can't wander and daydream, right? They Because it could wind up being their life, all right? got to keep uh, maintain a disciplined mind. Uh, a soldier knows that, and we have to understand it too as Christians because it's basically the same thing. No, we probably will not die physically, but our walk will die. Our usefulness will end for God and so on. Guys faithfulness and victory in the christian life and again i'm repeating some things we we looked at just a couple weeks ago peter talks about how that we are to arm ourselves a military term now again we have to remember that victory in the christian life starts with the way you think and your thinking starts with how you perceive the christian life how you perceive the christian life look ideally and and look I'm, i'm speaking in ideal terms but A good soldier of Jesus Christ is a person who really only has one thing on their mind spiritually, and that is to obey Jesus and endure whatever hardship it takes to win the battles that he leads us into, because it's all about bringing him glory. You know, God has given us everything we need to win this war, as I've said. But we must have the mind of Christ, otherwise if we have a carnal mind that's in love with the world, we are not gonna be victorious. Uh, too many Christians, as we have said for many years, are A-W-O-L. Uh, when it comes to spiritual warfare, that's because they don't view the Christian life properly. Again, it's a battleground, but they look at it as kind of a playground. Um, for them, it's all about socializing, networking, fellowship fun. It's not about fighting the battles of the Lord. They're not fighting the good fight of faith, as Jude commanded us. Uh, they're double-minded. They're trying to serve two masters, God and the world. And guys, that's always a recipe for defeat. But then Peter adds another thought in verse 1. He said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And then he adds this, for he who was suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there are three possible interpretations to what Peter says here, okay, to this statement. The first one is he's talking about in Commentators are not in agreement. That's why I'll share them all with you. Okay, uh, You have scholars that hold to any one of these. All right? I'll just share them with you. First of all, uh, that he's talking about suffering martyrdom for the cause of Christ, at which time our spirit is released from our body and sin will no longer be an issue. Could be. Number two, he's speaking of identifying with Christ's suffering by faith. Now this gets into Romans 6. I encourage you to read Romans 6 and meditate on it. Every time the word the words the flesh is seen there, it's not talking about the physical body, it's talking about the fallen nature. And Paul makes a big point of saying that we need to identify with Christ because we are one with him. Now that's positional, that's absolute But if we want the positional truth to come down to the practical life that we're living here on the earth, we have to walk in faith. We have to identify with Christ every day in his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, death of the old life and resurrection of that new life, the life of the Spirit. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6, and he says, if you reckon the flesh dead, that's a word, a faith word, by faith. Well, it will cause the flesh to be kethargeo, rendered inoperative. It doesn't mean the flesh will go away. It doesn't mean your fallen nature will never hassle you. What Paul is saying is it will not control you if you don't want it to. Before we got saved, we were the slaves of the fallen nature and Satan. Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were like dead fish floating downstream. As unbelievers, we were just, you know, kind of being carried by the winds of this world. The devil was in control, and he just carried us along. And we just, like dead fish floating downstream, we just did whatever the flesh wanted. As my pastor used to say, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live, healthy fish to swim against the current. And the fact that you're saved now, God has given you a heart to swim against the current to go against what the world says is good and normal and and, and how you used to live. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Jesus Christ has broken the power of the flesh, but we have to reckon it dead. We have to apply that victory by faith. Paul said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who is in me and lives his life through me if I will look to him by faith. Warren Worsby said along these lines or on this subject, he said, and I quote, Our goal in life is to cease from sin. We will not reach this goal until we die or are called home when the Lord returns. But this should not keep us from striving. I mean, that's the goal, okay? Peter did not say that suffering of itself would cause a person to stop sinning. Pharaoh in Egypt went through great suffering and the plagues, and yet he sinned even more. I have visited... Suffering people who cursed God and grew more and more bitter because of their pain. Suffering plus Christ in our lives can help us have victory over sin. But the central idea here seems to be the same truth taught in Romans 6. We are identified with Christ in his suffering and death, and therefore we can have victory over sin as we yield ourselves to God and have the same attitude. There's that idea again, the same attitude towards sin That Jesus had we can overcome the old life and manifest the new life end quote and then number three the third interpretation that uh, Peter might be uh, saying here some believe he's talking about how physical suffering and persecution for Christ's sake will cause sin in our lives to have less and less of a hold on us it's amazing how that works Uh, one pastor put it this way said and I quote when a person suffers physical persecution for the sake of Jesus it almost always profoundly changes their outlook regarding sin and the pursuit of the lusts of the flesh. That person is more likely to live the rest of his time in the flesh, not for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, end quote, quoting Peter there. Now, guys, I'm not sure exactly which one Peter had in mind. All three are biblical. All three should be taken to heart because they're all important concepts. But I, I think that the commentator, uh, John Phillips, really put it well. well. Let me read it to you, okay, what he, he said. He said, Peter adds another thought. For he that hath suffered in the flesh is ceased from sin. A believer who has been persecuted is a, is a believer who has learned how to live the victorious life. The kind of life that Paul describes, again, Romans 6. He has died to sin. He lives on the other side of death, on resurrection ground. The truth of which Peter has just reminded his readers, the spiritual significance of their baptism. And we talked about this last time. When Peter talks about baptism there in chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, somewhere around there, he's not talking about water baptism. Not the kind of that removes filth from the flesh. Remember we talked about that? He's talking about a dry baptism, if you will where you accept Christ and instantly the Spirit of God baptizes you into the body of Christ. The word just means to be immersed. He immerses you into the body of Christ. You're saved, okay? And Philip said, Peter is just reminded his readers of the spiritual significance of this baptism. The world does not generally persecute the carnal, worldly, backslidden believer, Such a believer poses no threat, awakens no accusing conscience, and causes no inconvenience. Peter learned that lesson the night he warmed his hands in the world's fire. In the courtyard of the high priest's palace at the time Jesus was on trial. In those days, Peter had not learned how to arm himself. His mind was in such turmoil that he denied again and again having any connection with Christ. The world let him alone when he began to curse and swear. That was their kind of language. They recognized it at once. Peter was no longer an outsider. He could come and go as he pleased. But a believer living in the power of the indwelling Christ treads the path of victory over sin. He is a threat to the wicked. The fact that they persecute him or her bears witness to the quality of that person's life. End quote. Guys, I can just say this to you. As I have read biographies and things over the years, Suffering, in general, has a way of changing people's hearts towards the cares of this life. I remember when I was uh, recovering from my knee replacement, I read the biography of uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer grew up in Germany. Uh, His dad was a very uh, renowned psychiatrist and neurologist. So, consequently, they had money. Uh, They had a summer home. They had uh, live-in nannies that took care of the kids. I'm not kidding you when I say, if you've ever watched the movie Sound of Music, that's exactly how it was. Although Bonhoeffer's father was not uh, a military man, he was a doctor, it's exactly the same. There's a a passage in that book about uh, how it was around their house at Christmas time. It was like something out of a, a novel. It was beautiful, all right? What they just... They were wealthy, and it was just a beautiful life. Well, then Hitler rose to power, and the war started, and it all changed. Of course, everything changed for everybody. Uh, inflation got so bad, there was a, a joke that would, was going around back then. A, a man uh, wheeled up to a storefront, uh, a wheelbarrow full of money, went inside for a second. When he came back, the money was on the porch there, but the wheelbarrow was gone. Money was useless inflation killed everything so their whole lives radically changed but through it all bonhoeffer wound up becoming a christian he was raised lutheran of course uh, in germany uh you know the state pays the clergy which is always a bad deal for the for the church whenever the state is paying the clergy the clergy is beholden to the state you don't want that but uh there were true believers and bonhoeffer became one of them and his life radically changed but, but just the suffering changed everything, uh, you know? And I think of the, the Ten Boom family as well, living at that same time. Uh, how Mr. Ten Boom was a watchmaker, he owned a, a, a shop, and I think they were well-to-do, not rich, but well-to-do. And yet when the war broke out and Hitler rose to power, uh, because these, this was a strong Christian family, they began to hide Jews, you know the story, uh, because the German government was killing Jews. And uh, the Bonhoeffers loved the Jewish people, and eventually they were found out. And Corey and her sister, her sister Betsy, went to concentration camp. Betsy was sickly; she died there. Corey, through a clerical error, sovereignty of God was released, and uh, spent the rest of her life sharing her testimony. It's amazing how that life can be going along, and then all of a sudden something happens where, from peace to persecution, your whole life or your whole nation gets turned upside down i don't know what's coming for our country i know that this church and many many other churches and christians across this nation have been praying for many years for revival it could be that god is about to bring it but bring it in a way that we really hadn't maybe thought about he could bring it because everything that we have come to hold dear rely upon could be taken from us everything can come crashing down we don't know I know one thing, if we were in that situation right now, this book, we, we couldn't be able to get enough of it, because Peter is talking to people who are living with that kind of persecution. When you're not living with that kind of persecution, when things are going pretty well, you read these things, oh yeah, that's good, okay, sure, You. Know, when you're actually living it, it's like, what else is he saying? I need to know more, because it's just it's, it's just incredible, right, that uh, these things apply, As I was studying though, I uh, came across something uh, another pastor had uh, said. He gave an interesting perspective on this subject uh, that doesn't go along with the suffering of Christ and and all, but I'll, I'll read it to you. He said, and I quote, when you go through tough times, realize first that suffering loosens sin's grip on us. That is, when you go through suffering, you no longer give in to the lust of the flesh You no longer succumb to sin with the same ease, the same uh, vulnerability you experienced previously. Why? Well, perhaps the story of a man in the Rogue Valley, that's in Oregon, provides the best answer. Then he goes on to tell the story. He said, this man was known as the life of the party. He played on the local softball team and would often supply the keg. When his three-year-old daughter was killed by a drunk driver, he lost his heart for partying. He was no longer interested in the kegers after the softball game. He found himself despising the places to which he was once attracted when he saw the reality of what drunkenness and partying did to his own family. That's what suffering does. That's what uh, trials do. The ugliness of sin is seen when it begins to touch your own life that is why peter says if you've suffered in the flesh either due to your own sin or sin by uh, the hands of another you see the result of sin and realize that rather than being something to wink at or chuckle about sin stinks end quote yeah at the very least well back in first peter 4 verse 1 again peter said therefore since christ suffered for us in the flesh Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That's just a way of saying the will of the unbelieving world around us. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And the word there in the Greek for abominable means unlawful. And I think Peter probably has in mind these unlawful, in God's economy, uh, against God's law, these um, pagan worship services where people would worship these pagan deities uh, in these pagan temples. And if they were fertility gods and goddesses, which they often were, uh, there, was, there was then the, uh, the, the temple priestesses who are prostitutes. And, of course, the whole god or goddess was worshipped through sexual orgies and stuff. And uh, Peter said, you know, some of you were involved in that before you got saved. Don't miss the um, strong contrast he is making between the will of God and the will of the Gentiles. Or, in other words, he's contrasting our Christian life before Christ and now after Christ. Now, we can all remember, right? Some of us lived lives that were worse than others. We can all look back, though, and see the old life. And Peter says, look, and I'm sure he was talking in part to some who had not broken free of that old life yet. Uh, You know, the flesh is strong. The old life was all about the flesh, doing whatever the flesh wanted, indulging your flesh, right? Doing everything the flesh wanted, but whatever the flesh felt like, doing you did it and peter is probably talking to some of these christians who had not yet broken free from the old life completely and he's admonishing them he's saying basically look remember how it was before you knew christ now look you lived enough of your life fulfilling the lust of the flesh doing uh, what all the other unbelieving persons did in your life around you and and again the list is not exhaustive by any means but it does paint an ugly picture for many of us Uh, with regard to the kind of life that we lived before we got saved. I guess here's the bottom line that Peter is driving at. Are we going to choose to fully renounce and walk away from the old life to live totally for the Lord? Or are we going to try to serve two masters, the Lord and the world? In some ways, it reminds me of Israel in the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt. Remember, we studied Joshua. Of course, Israel was down in Egypt in captivity, in bondage, for over 400 years. And God promised that someday he was going to raise up and deliverer. Well, that day finally came. And uh, you know how Moses then uh, was used by God to lead God's people out of Egypt. Now, Egypt in the Bible is often a type of the world. And God said that he led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, which is a form of baptism. Water baptism, I think, is the idea. I think what is being described there uh, allegorically is how that we once were in bondage to the world. Of course, they were in bondage in Egypt, Pharaoh was a cruel taskmaster, we were once in bondage to the world, Satan was a cruel taskmaster, and the only way Israel could be delivered was through divine intervention. The only way we could be delivered from the power of Satan and sin was through divine intervention. Both required a miracle. Both required a miracle. In fact, in the Old Testament, the event that is constantly pointed to as one of the climax of God's power being displayed was God bringing the plagues on Egypt and delivering his people out of Egypt. In the New Testament, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How that Jesus Christ, after he died, he arose again. And that was a miraculous event, of course. And through it, we are delivered from the power of sin and death and Satan and so on. Now, when the people of God came out of Egypt through the Red Sea, water baptism, we were all saved and got baptized at one point. God led them into the wilderness, and he brought them to Horeb, Mount Sinai. You have to understand it was only an 11-day journey from Horeb, Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, the border of the Promised Land. 11-day journey. How long did it take him to finally get to the Promised Land and enter in? 40 years why because of unbelief because the adults in that group refused to trust that God would fulfill his promise when they entered the promised land they had sent the spies in and 10 of them brought back an evil report there's giants in the land there were like grasshoppers next to them and I don't think they were being uh, they were exaggerating too much these were literal giants we can't go in there. We can't. Let's go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb were the two faithful spies. And they said, Well, they're big. That's true. But God's given us the land. He's promised it to us. Let's go in. Let's take it. God's on our side. But the people listened to the ten evil spies. And so God said, Because you would not trust me. This generation who said, I've only led you out of Egypt so that your children would die in the wilderness. You're going to die in the wilderness, and your kids are going to come into the promised land. And so it took them 40 years to wander in the wilderness. That adult generation was on a death march. It was on a death march. They were just wandering around the wilderness until they died. And then their children entered into the promised land. What does the wilderness represent? I believe it represents carnal Christianity. Israel came out of Egypt. Egypt represents the world. So symbolically, it sounds to me like or represents how that we as Christians come out of the world, we get saved, but then we enter into a time of immaturity. Obviously, we're just brand new, carnality. Uh, The marks of a baby Christian is carnality. But here's the thing. God does not want us to remain carnal and immature for very long. He wants us to get right into the Word. He wants us to start studying and growing because He wants to lead us from that carnality quickly into the life of the spirit. That's what I believe the promised land represents, not heaven. Because once they entered into the promised land, they fought battles. We're not gonna fight battles in heaven. A lot of the old hymns immortalized um, the promised land uh, as heaven and uh, crossing the Jordan. They, They likened to crossing from this life into the next life, death. Except the promised land, they had battles to fight. Territory to win. I don't think we're going to be fighting battles in heaven. The promised land represented the life of the Spirit, that life of victory and fruitfulness that God wants for his people to enter into right now. How? By faith. By faith. Now, here's the thing, guys. There are a lot of Christians who have, of course, come out of the world or saved, but they're wandering around aimlessly in a spiritual wilderness, carnality and compromise. They never really learn or want to trust God, it seems. They're always fretting. They're always murmuring. They're always complaining. They never walk in faith. They never trust God to do what he's promised to do. And so consequently, they wander around and around in a spiritual death march. And many Christians I have seen have spent their entire lives in a spiritual wilderness and have died there, never entering into the life of the... I'm not saying they're lost. They they went to heaven. It's just that they never knew the power and the victory and the fruitfulness that was theirs in Christ if they would have only entered into that life by faith. It's really something to think about. It really is. Here's the problem with the wilderness. There's a lot of problems. For a christian but here's 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 one of the problems you've got too much of the lord in you to be comfortable around worldly people anymore and you've got too much of the world in you still to be comfortable around spirit-filled people of god so you're in this this middle wilderness you're not happy anywhere it's a sad place to be in all right and um you know, Peter wants to keep us. He's, he's desperately trying to keep us from that tragedy. And it is a tragedy. To never grow up in the Christian life is a tragedy, just like it would be if a couple had a child and that baby was be- beautiful and, and you know how little infants are and beautiful and, and, and they don't do much. They roll around, they drool, they eat, they do other things. Uh, that's all you expect of a baby. That's all you expect of a baby. It's cute. It's normal. But if after five years or ten years, that's still going on. They're not growing. Something's wrong. They can't function. They are they're, they're still have the mind of, a, of an infant. What was once cute and normal is now a great tragedy. It's a tragedy when God's kids don't grow up. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 5, He said, look, this is high time. You guys ought to be teaching the Word of God to others by this time. You've been Christians long enough. Instead, you have to be taught, again, the most basic principles of your faith because you're not growing. You're just eating, drinking milk. You're not graduating into solid food. In other words, you're not taking the Word of God seriously. Those truths that you drank in when you were first born of the Spirit, you know, God's Word can be milk but also meat. And it's those that want to really grow and use what they learn in their daily lives, discerning between good and evil, as Paul said, walking in the Spirit. Those are the ones who begin to feed on the Word in a deeper way, and they grow. But there are some Christians, the mentality is this, I'm saved, that's all I care about. Really, you don't really want to, no, no, you don't want to grow? You don't want to serve the i I just, I'm saved, that's all I care about. Okay, To me, that's a tragedy. That you would not want to grow and and use your gifts in service to to our king. But that's up to you. It's a tragedy, though. And Peter is desperately trying to keep us from that tragedy. But to do so, guys, we absolutely must have the mind of Christ on the subject of suffering. Turn back to 1 Peter 2. And we've already read this and studied it, but can I just read it again? Because it goes along with what we're saying. First Peter 2, starting with verse 19. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, you're suffering for what you didn't do wrong, but you take it patiently, as Christ did. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? So in other words, if you did something wrong and you're beaten for it as a slave take it patiently big deal you are wrong but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before god for to this you were called because christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him, to the Father, who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, that's all about us identifying with Christ, we might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. He's our example. He's the one we need to follow after. I don't think there's any way a Christian can grow faster than by having this mindset. And be willing to not fight and, you know, for your rights and, you know, how dare they treat me that way and I wasn't wrong. But simply by following in Jesus' footsteps, I'm telling you, a Christian that desires to follow Christ in this regard, the Holy Spirit, I think, pours out so much grace in that person and they grow incredibly quickly. I've seen it. I have seen Christians who have been Christians for 20 years and they're still sucking on the milk. I have seen Christians who are Christians six months and they're already teaching Bible studies. It's all about the mindset. It's all about you know where you're coming from. Now, back in First Peter 4, verse 4, Peter says, in regard to these, the you know, you've lived enough of your life hanging around with these people that want you to just sin, okay? Partiers and so on. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Okay, In other words, just just the flood of sin, opening the floodgates and just letting the sin pour on you and so on. Uh, they think it's strange that you don't run with them. You know, the, same, the old gang, that you don't run with them doing all the stuff they used to do, drinking and partying and whatever else. They speak evil of you. Speak evil of you. Isn't it interesting how unbelievers think? Now, we were once there, so we understand this. Um, They think it's completely normal for them to drink themselves into an early grave or sleep around to the point where they might catch some kind of incurable STD. And I was just reading the other day how there are cases of gonorrhea now that are uh, antibiotic-resistant. I mean, so uh, STDs that once could be cured with antibiotics are becoming resistant now, which means there's no cure. You think people would be terrified. You think that would really put the kibosh on a lot of the immoral behavior. I think it probably has with some people. Other people don't care. They're not going to deny themselves. In their minds, to live this way, that's completely normal. Indulge your flesh. But if a person who was living that lifestyle gets saved, and now they stop drinking, partying, sleeping around, they start going to church, reading the Bible, you know what the world thinks? They think you're a crazy lunatic, a weirdo. See, that's abnormal to them. You know, you think that they would look at a person who once was in bondage to alcohol or drugs or something else and how that crisis set them free and they would want to, you know, have what you have. Well, some do, but not many, right? I mean, I remember, I think I've shared this story with you before. How back in the 60s, uh, when the Jesus movement was really, you know, was really moving. And Calvary was, you know, was at the heart of it. And these kids, hippie kids and all, um, they had left home and they were on their own. They're just living, a, you know, drugging and partying and so on. And they would live in communes. Well, in one of these communes, uh, true story, uh, there was a, a young guy and a gal, I don't know how, late teens, early 20s. And uh, they had just shot up with some, with some heroin. And um, I think it was the uh, the guy who said, man, I, I wish I could get off this stuff. I just wish I could get free of this stuff. And the girl who had grown up in a Christian home said, well, I, I know how you can get free. What do you mean? I I know how you get, you can get free of it. Well, what do you mean? Tell me. No, I'm not going to tell you because then you're going to get free and leave here and I won't see anymore. No, please tell me. And she shared the gospel with him. Isn't it interesting, as Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, a sower went forth to sow the seed, right? The seed was the word, right? The sower could be anybody. Could be a Christian, could be an unbeliever who knows the gospel. The power is not in the sower, it's in the seed to bring forth new life. So this gal having grown up in church or having gone to a wanders or something, shared the gospel with this guy. He goes into the other, true story, goes into the other room, kneels out by the bed, accepts Christ, was completely delivered. And that wasn't the only example that I heard of this. Never had a withdrawal, was completely delivered from the heroin, walked out of there a free man. I don't know what happened to the gal. Hopefully she took her own advice, but... You can know the truth and not really apply the truth. And know that the truth will set you free. If you don't apply it, it won't. But verse 5, Peter said, They will give an account, all these people, who think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, indulging your flesh in all kinds of sin like you used to. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Of course, the living are those that were alive when Peter wrote this epistle. And the dead, of course, are those who had died in their sins. Now they've died as unbelievers. But will be resurrected to stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment someday. Let me just say this. Most people, I think most people in the world believe in God, in some kind of a God, deity. Okay? Most people, I think, in the world do believe in some kind of a God. But most of those folks believe... But let's see if they got, he got a Christian mindset, most of them believe that he is a God of love who won't judge people except, as we have said, the worst criminals and mass murderers and terrorists. I mean, those, those folks might go to hell, but, you know, um, but he won't send anyone else to hell. And that's if they even believe in hell. As I said, interesting statistics Statistic I read several years ago, people were uh, asked about if they believed in God. Those that said they did, How many believe in in heaven? 76% of those folks did. Uh, How many believe in hell? 6%. People just don't want to think about hell. You know, if I buried my head in the sand and pretend it's not real, it's not real. So a lot of these folks, they um, believe God is love. And because he's a God of love, he's not going to judge people and send them to hell. Because of this, guys, there is no fear of God, no fear of coming judgment in their hearts. And therefore, nothing to keep their sinful desires in check. We were talking to a a guy years ago at a crusade uh, in the area, Christian crusade. And after the altar call, he came up and we were talking to this guy. And um, he he was incensed that God would make a torture chamber like hell to throw people into. And I said, do you realize that hell was not made for man? Hell was made for the devil and his angels, the Bible says. But if man wants to follow the devil in his same rebellion, he will follow him all the way to the place that God has created for the devil and his angels. That's not God's fault because God is offering you a way by which you might be saved through his son, death on the cross, and so on. The reality of hell, though serves a practical purpose here on the earth, it keeps the sinful, wicked desires of man. If they believe in God... And if any fear of God at all, coming judgment, it will keep sinful desires and actions in check. But the last day's church, what we're living in right now, the last day's church feeds right into this, that there is no hell. Many pastors, leaders in the church, even the Pope himself, are all claiming that hell isn't real. I haven't heard the Pope come out and say I was misunderstood, have you? I haven't heard yet that he has said, no, 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 I was misquoted, I was misunderstood. What he said was, I'm not sure he denied the existence of hell, only that people don't actually go there for eternity, they just cease to exist. I assume what he is talking about is annihilationism. And this is a belief that people have where unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire, they hit the lake of fire, and go out of existence. There is no eternal suffering. And we have talked about this. But the last day's church has played right into this mindset that there is no hell, there is no ultimate judgment, which has removed all restraints uh, from people's hearts to do the evil that they do. Look, in the book of Proverbs we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is all about having to stand before Him someday and give an account on the day of judgment. That should strike terror into the heart of every sinner that someday I'm going to have to stand before the God of the universe and I'm going to have to uh, account to Him for the way I've lived. But if there's no hell. There's no judgment. There's no fear of the Lord then. All restraints are gone. Turn to Psalm 36. And We're almost out of time, so I won't have you turn anymore. I'll just read them to you. But Psalm 36, verse 1. The psalmist said, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. Listen. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's why the wicked are wicked. <laughs> they have no fear of God. No fear of judgment. Jeremiah 2, verse 19 says your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And listen, the fear of me, God is saying, is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. And then Psalm 10, verse 13, we can go on all night, but says, why do the wicked renounce God? Because he has said, the wicked has said in his heart, you will not require an account. I won't have to give an accounting of my life to you someday. In other words, there's going to be no day of reckoning, no consequences for their actions. Guys, on this point, unbelievers are woefully ignorant. And I'll just read you three out of the dozens we could look at about coming judgment. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul said, I charge you, Timothy, Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, listen, whether good or bad. Now, I don't really have a lot of time to get into this. You can get the tape from this study, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. When Paul said... We're all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account whether, you know, good or bad. I believe what Paul is saying is there is coming a day when Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but that won't be a punitive judgment. They'll receive rewards for the things they did on the earth. Now, is it going to be a completely happy time? No, a lot of tears, I believe, because of wasted opportunities wasted rewards that people could have had but they didn't want to again, I'm just saved, that's all I care about didn't want to really serve the Lord here on the earth but then of course there's going to be an ultimate judgment a throne, the great white throne unbelievers will stand before and give an account for all the bad they have done on the earth and Revelation talks about that verse 12 Revelation 20 verse 12 and I saw the dead small and great now these are the unbelievers standing before God and the books were opened Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Guys, again, the church is the conscience of society, a restrainer of evil. You can read 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. So when Christian leaders downplay hell or flat out deny it exists, they are really helping to promote sin. I know they wouldn't see it that way but they are helping to promote sin. And listen, those unbelievers that they help feel good about themselves, they remove the fear of God because there's no hell, there's no judgment. What they do then is they encourage these folks to go ahead and live lives that are more sinful instead of teaching them what the Bible says about coming judgment. Do you realize in every sermon in the book of Acts that the apostles gave, appealing to unbelievers to be saved none of them use god's love as a basis now it's not wrong to use god's love as a basis to see people come to christ i'm just telling you that apostolic preaching was not focused around preaching the love of god to be saved it was all about god's judgment flee the wrath to come jesus came to rescue us from the judgment that is coming upon the whole world. They appeal to people to get saved based on God's coming judgment. Oh, but it's wrong to scare people into heaven. Really? Really? Some saved by fear, Jude said. Okay? Some by compassion. If a person says, I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. Okay, put my arm around you, okay. It's good you realize that. Now here, let me talk to you about the love of God for sinners. Another might say, well, I don't I'm not afraid of God. When I get up there, I'll, t- I'll give him a piece of my mind. Uh, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang you over the fires of hell for a little bit, you know, so you, so you g- get an idea of what's coming. But whatever gets a person saved in my mind, I don't care what it takes. Love them into the kingdom, scare them into the kingdom, just get them into the kingdom, okay? But when Christian leaders downplay hell, they encourage people to sin. Which means the judgment that these people will will incur if they don't receive Christ is going to be a lot greater because they will be judged on the volume of their sin on the earth and the severity, but the volume. So all these pastors who are man-pleasers, and I was just talking to one of our elderly saints just the other day, and uh, he lives in a um, kind of assisted living Situation: A lot of people in this place, older folks, and uh, one pastor came in and was doing a Bible study. He does this weekly, so this gentleman decided he's going to go and check it out, and sat there. And he told me, he said, "This guy said, not in no uncertain terms, pretty much everyone's going to heaven. This guy's got to love. I mean, you know, all the only people scare you with all that talk of hell. Everyone's pretty much going to heaven. This is what's out there." This is what's out there. And when people try to placate with their preaching and not penetrate through the power of the Spirit with the point of the sword, and the point of the sword is God's righteousness and His holy anger and His judgment against sin, that's the point. If you dull that, what do you got? Happy talk. Because if there's no coming judgment, it's all about being happy now. My good news is, of course, that God stands ready to forgive any sinner for all their sins. But they have to accept Christ now. Today is the day of salvation uh, while they're still alive on the earth. And, um, man, I wanted to get to verse 6. But you know what? I'm not going to be able to do that. Uh, Verse 6 is kind of controversial. So I'll kind of leave you a little cliffhanger there. Uh, You can read it over. And um, a lot of people come away with different interpretations, and so we will uh, save verse 6 for next time and uh, continue on in our study in 1 Peter chapter 4. So Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, Peter's all about admonishing us to live that new life in Christ. Well, why do we want to go back to Egypt? Well, why do we want to remember the Good times as we were living in sin. There weren't any good times. We thought there were good times. Didn't realize how much that life was destroying us. Lord, thank you that you've redeemed us. Thank you that you've delivered us out of that wickedness. And now give us grace, Lord, to walk in the newness of the Spirit. Every day, as lights in this dark world. Lord, just give us grace. We've lived enough of our lives partying drunkenness, lewdness, sexual immorality. We're ashamed as we think of the things we used to do because we were in darkness. But we can't plead ignorance anymore. We are now children of light. Lord, give us grace to forsake that old life once and for all for clinging to anything of it. Give us grace, Lord, to rise up in the power of the Spirit, to be set free once and for all, not to ever look back that people might look at our lives and see a person who's been set free and ask, how did you get set free? And we can tell them about you, Lord. So we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.